<laughs> Guys, I have good news. You don't seem sleepy tonight. Everyone, give yourself a pat on the back. You're doing great. Uh, you are thriving in this camp life. Oh, yeah. I should tell you, I was, I was trimming my beard, and I messed it up. And so then I had to shave the whole thing. That's why I, I also look like a junior hire tonight. <laughs> All right, well, hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. I'll give you some time to find it. But guys, here's what I want you to catch as we get started tonight. Two real quick things. One, I, I hope that you're a little bit proud of yourself and you value not just what I have spoken into thin air, but the, what you have accomplished and maybe retained. Guys, at this point, you likely have a really good grasp of Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, Jan Daniel chapter 3. We're about to do Daniel chapter 4. Like, we are moving through this. You guys got some substance in your brains. That is awesome. But tonight, we kind of get a big departure, a shift in the way that this thing works. We're going to spend a little bit of time kind of doing a character study of this wicked pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar. But that's not the craziest part. The craziest part is it's like he's narrating now. We're actually going to read in the Bible a letter that he wrote where he's speaking in first person. And in this letter, he's actually going to share uh, maybe his most embarrassing moment, which for you and I, you know, you're sitting on the bus on the way up here and you're like, oh yeah, my most embarrassing moment. Yeah. But this would have been crazy for kings back then. They didn't do this. Like the nerd commentary guy that I read, David Guzik, he points out that in, in terms of archaeology, when kings are having like history transcribed and chiseled onto pillars and tablets, they would leave out the parts that they were embarrassed of. This is incredibly unique in terms of a moment in history because King Nebuchadnezzar is going, normally I would leave this out. This is humiliating, but it's so important that I'm going to leave it in. I think he learned a lesson. I think we can read it and learn a lesson. But have you ever had an embarrassing moment? Probably not you guys. You're sophisticated gentlemen and gentlewomen. But just... But just put yourself in that spot of, of humbling humiliation. I'll tell you one of mine. I, I remember when I was a little kid, I spent the night at my friend's house, who's also my next-door neighbor, and we were playing video games, we're eating pizza, we're doing all the spend-the-night stuff. It was awesome. And then it came time to go to bed, and his older brother had just got this, like, California king-size mattress, which was crazy for any kid to have. And his mattress was like old and the dog had kind of chewed on it. So his mom was like, listen, that mattress is huge. Why don't you sleep way over there? You sleep way over there. You're great. And, you know, we're each like 30 pounds, tiny little wee. So we eat pizza until we feel like we're going to throw up. We play video games until our eyes are going to bleed. And then we hop into bed. And we're like, oh, what a great night. And I, as you know, am a sleepwalker. And I have a sleepwalking dream that night that I went into the restroom. Uh, I woke up and found out that didn't happen, if you know what I mean. Um, I wet the bed in my neighbor's house in his big brother's brand new bed. And I'm laying there going, <laughs> like getting a little bit cold and the shivers, you know. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I just get up, clean myself off. I go back and I just lay down on the floor and I fall asleep. Meanwhile, Jason wakes up because there's something wet on the bed. And you know what he thinks to himself? <gasps> oh no, I wet the bed. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so now he's embarrassed. He doesn't say anything. The next morning, I'm like, uh, I think I hear my mom calling me. I got to go. So I leave. He thinks I'm weirded out that he wet the bed. I never tell him. His mom is outraged. His brother picks on him. They drag the mattress out in front of the house, lean it against the garage door to dry in the sun. And I can hear, because he's my next door neighbor, Jason, what were you thinking? You should have gone to the bathroom. You should drink water before you go to bed. And I was so, I was mortified. I was so embarrassed. Like, I didn't tell him until we were in high school. And he was still mad in high school. <laughs> well, that's not what King Nebuchadnezzar does. He goes, yes, I was humiliated, but there's a lesson here. There's something important that I learned that we can learn, and so I'm going to tell you. So, are you ready to read this thing? Okay, here we go. Now, I'm just going to read verse 1 and then verse 4 if you're following me and you're like, what? Where'd he go? It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, picture this, contented, everybody go, (sighs) and prosperous. He's contented, prosperous in his palace. You know what that means in my brain? He is reclining on one of those fancy ancient king beds. There's someone fanning him with a palm frond, you know, just and he's like, too fast, Jacob, slow down. Yes, my lord, you know. Someone else is like trembling because they're scared of this big scary king, and they're like holding a cluster of grapes, and they're like, would you like one more, my lord? And he's like, no, and he swats them away. He is contented. He is prospering. And then... He goes to Betty by time. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. I think again of my kids. You can hear the sound of a nightmare, right? (laughs) That's what he's doing. He's terrified. And then he goes to Daniel. Because over and over again, these magicians that he's trained and hired, they can't do anything. He knows that Daniel's God can actually interpret the dream that he has. And so he goes to Daniel, and he tells him the dream. And in verse 10, it says, These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were like be- were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field. I picture like, I don't know, water buffalo down there just enjoying this tree's shade, you know. The beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. Picture Toucan Sam just up there just cleaning his feathers, just having a great life up in those branches, right? This is abundance. This is shade. This is protection is what this tree is doing. From every creature was fed from this tree. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him, interesting, because we're talking about a tree, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. This is getting weird, you guys. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal. 
<laughs> till seven times passed before him. This is still his dream. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and give the, gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. So he's talking to Daniel. He shares him. He's like, I was terrified. I had a nightmare. Here's my dream in its entirety. What does it mean? And just to paraphrase the next few verses, we find out that Daniel is like super perplexed. It says he's terrified because as God reveals to him the meaning of this dream, Daniel starts to realize the message of this dream is not good for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's real bad. And I have seen this guy in his anger. He threw my friends in the fiery furnace. I'm nervous to upset this guy. What do I do? But King Nebuchadnezzar reassures He can tell. He kind of reassures him. He's like, listen, if it's bad news, you could tell me. And so Daniel tells him what his dream means. Basically, he goes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. You're the greatest. Your kingdom has grown. You're healthy. So many people are in your kingdom thriving and flourishing because of you. And yet you believe you're the bee's knees. And so you know what God is going to do? He's going to cut you down. He's not going to kill you. He's going to cut this tree down. He's going to cap it. He's going to leave the roots intact. And then remember in that part of the dream where it shifts from talking about a tree to he? And he basically goes, and you're going to lose your mind. You're going to go crazy for seven years. You're going to think you're an animal. You, what? And, and we don't get to hear King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. We're just told in verse 28, <laughs> all this happened. Like this actually happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, verse 29, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, that had to be a sweet view, right? King Nebuchadnezzar historically is known as the builder of cities. He's probably got a three-story, five-story, seven-story, one giant-story porch up there, just looking across his mountainscapes, you know? And as he surveys the beauty of all he has acquired and all he has built, he says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? Sorry, I just turned him into Macho Man Randy Savage. By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. And as he's talking about how great he is, how awesome he is, how everything cool that he has done, it says the words were still on his lips when a voice from heaven came. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. And he gives to them and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. I, guys, I don't even know how to help you picture this. This is so crazy. Like, I have so many questions. Okay, so if he thinks he's a cow, I know how cows walk on all fours, right? But was he, like, on his knees, or was his, like, Royal Heine up in the air. Is, is he mooing? Is he like, you know? This is nutty. All his beard hair and his head of hair grows out. They say like the long feathers of an eagle. Guys, his fingernails grow out, his toenails. They say like the talons of birds. What's that movie? Uh, 
You know, the large talons, that Napoleon Dynamite, right? He's got all this stuff going on. He's like on the outskirts of town. Like, I wonder if people who used to live in fear of this guy now walk outside the town and they're like, oh yeah, there's Mukau Nebuchadnezzar. It says that he like hung out with the other wild animals. Like, I don't know, maybe he's got a herd of other cows and he just went over there. He's got a turkey buddy. I don't know. But guys, this is a weird story. Would you agree? Like, we have to ask the question, <laughs> why is this in the Bible? Is there... Here's the luxury and the advantage that you and I have. This is a really hard passage to teach if we weren't at Hume Lake. Meaning, if we didn't already have the context of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, this would be like, how bizarre, and that's it. But because you have that recently in your mind, we get to do something that's pretty deep and substantive, and I'm excited to have you recall what we already know to arrive at this point. I made myself a handy-dandy flashcard, just so I wouldn't mess this up. So, can you take a minute... Put your thinking cap on. We're not doing a review. We're just going to take 30 seconds and recall a couple things. If you're ready, say, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar's life thus far. This is how we're going to understand the point that's being made by God here. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, when he's told all those guys, interpret my dream or I'll kill you all. Remember this? He's going to chop them into pieces of four trees, look crazy. Wow, all that stuff. Well, he demands that, and it's, his, it's pride, it's selfishness, it's ego, it's all sin. And then when he gets the dream interpreted, did you, did you notice, this was verse 47, how his attitude changes? And he's like, oh, God is good. He's the God of gods. He, I'm quoting, he said, he's the Lord of kings. Like, oh, I love you, God. But then he reverts, he goes right back. Remember when he built that big, huge statue for everybody worship? What was he doing when he built that big, huge statue? He wanted every single person to worship it, to centralize his power, to make his name great. He is swelling with the pride, the sin of pride again. And then again, he threatens to murder people if they don't do it. Pride, anger all over the place, murderous threats. He's just living in sin. And then the, that thing resolves in chapter 3, verse 28, where now he's saying things like, Praise be to your God. He says, like, he is the God of all gods. Like, he's acknowledging how great God is again. And then he goes right back into all the sins that he wrestles with full board. This is what we just read in here. Remember, he's like, oh, he goes to Daniel, because the other magicians can't interpret these dreams. He's like, hey, you're God. He's the one where no dream is too difficult for him to, to discern. But then again, we find him here, and he's going, my power, my majesty, my glory, and he falls right back into the sin of extreme pride. Guys, the point, I believe the reason God just smacked this guy down in the most outrageous way is because he wanted to make it abundantly clear, both to Nebuchadnezzar, everybody who lived then, and everybody who lives since then, this is not an option for how you live. You cannot acknowledge God and then just fill your life with sin. And then acknowledge God and fill your... You will not be okay if you live that way. To put it differently, I believe Nebuchadnezzar believed a lie. The lie that he believed was that you can just acknowledge God and be your own king. Now, he was a king, but there were other kings in the Bible, King Saul, King David, and they messed up a lot. But the moments that they were doing it right... As kings even, they surrendered to God, who was called the king of kings, right? They let God be the one who in, who's in control and directed. But this guy's going, 
I can give a nod to God and then be my own king. And in that moment, God smacks him down. Guys, the crazy thing, (laughs) I have to be a little bit harsh with you right now. The crazy thing is that he was a wicked pagan king from a godless nation with a hostile culture who lived thousands of years ago. But a ton of us in this room as Christians are living that way. We acknowledge God and then go, this is enough. I'm going to go be my own king. We acknowledge God and then we go, I'm going to fill my life with sin as much as I want. And as long as every once in a while I go, oh, God, you're great. I sing that worship song. I go to youth group. This formula works. God, God made this guy snap. Like this, this, was, this is a legitical medical condition that God went, now you got this. I looked it up. In 1946, there's a doctor who wrote a medical article, and he calls this, he gives this thing that Nebuchadnezzar had a name. It's called uh, Insania Zoanthropica, and he had a patient in 1946 who had the same thing, where he thought he was an animal. God thinks this is a, such a big deal. Nothing else has gotten through to Nebuchadnezzar. Then he's going to make him snap and go crazy. God is not okay with this. Guys, I wonder if you and I have bought that lie at some point in in our our lives, that I have two options. Either God can be my king, which is all this Christian stuff, go to church, follow all the dry rules, do exactly what he says, have no fun, live a boring life, or I can be my own king. And you know what? As Christians, I don't know if you've ever thought this consciously, but we can get ourselves into a thought process where we go, I I think that actually kind of works. It may not be God's top choice. I will still acknowledge him sometimes, but I don't make that bad of a king of my life. I I might sin a little bit, but it's not going to be anything crazy like murdering people like he did. I'm not going to be a serial killer for crying out loud. I might do something every once in a while that I think that's awesome, that's super fun, that's exciting to me, and the Bible says don't and I'll go to church, I will acknowledge God and be my own king. What's the big deal? Because that's the exact thing that God smacked King Nebuchadnezzar down for. And, and if I had to guess, I'm not being mean to you. I was this in junior high. I think that's probably the majority of this room. And I think the best way that I can serve you tonight is kind of unpack why that doesn't work and maybe bring our brains into alignment with how God views sin. So if that's the lie that we think, oh, I can be king or God can be king, I want to tell you the truth. The truth is that doesn't exist. Those aren't options. Your options are God is king or your sin is king. There is no scenario where you are king. And you're like, what? What are you talking about? I can prove it. Will you roll with me on this little adventure? Okay, here we go. Well, um, there's a verse. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, and it begins to help us understand what sin is like. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says this. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Some of your Bibles may say flesh. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature or our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature's objects of wrath. Guys, what the Bible is saying in that little verse terrifies me. Because it means my sin is not the external bad things I do. 
It means my sin, the way that this is describing it, is this thing inside me. It's this piggish, carnal, appetite-driven, mood-drawn piece of me that overrides, sabotages, and betrays the person that I want to be. It says it has its own deceitful thoughts and desires, and it's a part of me, it's in me. That's terrifying. Like, like it's your flesh or your sinful nature when, when school is out, it's summer break, and you go to the fridge, and you're like, hmm, and you open, and there's nothing in there except like a gross expired half-empty bottle of mustard and some ketchup packets, you know? And you go sit on the couch, and you eat Cheetos and play video games till your eyes bleed. And what happens five minutes later? Something in your brain goes, check fridge now. That's not your rational brain who has log- logically arrived at the conclusion, I bet what has magically appeared in the fridge is a warm rotisserie chicken. You don't think that. Some piggish, appetite-driven, carnal piece of you just overrode what actually makes sense logically, and you're back there checking the fridge, looking at the same nothing in there. Raise your hand if you've experienced that. That's that's what I'm saying. Guys, it's your sinful nature or it's your flesh when you know what kind of friend you want to be. I know that as a friend, what I want to be to my peers is I want each of us to be better as a result of this friendship. I want you to be able to trust me, me to be able to trust you. I want to have fun and be encouraging and grow with you. I just want this, not something like super religiously and prudish, I just want this to be awesome with you. And while that's my goal, what happens instead? I find out some juicy tidbit that you shared with me in confidence, and this reel starts going in the back of my brain where I realize, if I gossip about what you just told me, these people are going to want to hear that. They're going to be interested in my words. I could gain some popularity points, and despite my better judgment, I gossip about the thing that you shared with me, betraying our friendship. It gets back to you. You feel super hurt, and you go, why would you do that? And you know what my answer would be? Was in junior high and high school when I did this? I'm so sorry. I don't know why I did that. I knew what I wanted to be, and some deceitful thing in me had a desire that overrode the person I was trying to be. Does that sound, when you're saying, I don't know why I do what I do, does that sound like you're in the driver's seat? Does it sound like you're in control enough where you can be your own king? I don't think so. Guys, it's your sinful nature when you know what kind of son or daughter you want to be. As far as it depends on me, I want to have a good relationship with my parents. I'm not trying to be a jerk in my house. I, I want to, when I'm an adult, I want to look back at my childhood and go, I enjoyed my time with my parents. And yet, guys, for me, I remember at night being grounded, crying in my room because I just had a huge argument with my mom and I started the argument knowing she was right. But I still argued, I still fought back, I still know about this, know about this, know about this, and I'm like, I'm grossed out by myself in the way I'm acting. Why am I doing this? It's because my sinful nature overrode who I was. That it's your sinful nature when you know who you wanna be when you're alone. I want to be a person of integrity. I want to be the same person with my friends as I am at home. And yet you send that text. You look at those things online that you shouldn't be looking at. You immediately fill yourself with shame and regret and guilt. And you feel dirty. And you go, why am I doing this? Because it's not an option for you to be a king. It's God is your king or sin is your king. Because the nature of sin, this is the first thing that I have written down, is that sin always overrides us. Sin always overrides us. Guys, I'm, I'm just going to be candid with you because you know what I would hate tonight? If I tell you a bunch of different points about sin and none of it becomes real. My hope, if I'm honest, and what I've been praying for you tonight 
is not just that you learn some concept about sin. My hope is that maybe God put something in your heart that brings you to humility, just like he did with, with King Nebuchadnezzar, and you move away from that sin in a healthy way. So I'll go first. This happened very clearly in my life when I was in junior high. Someone showed me some stuff that we shouldn't have been looking at, pictures that were inappropriate, and I, I wasn't looking for it, but as a, as a seventh grader, now it occupied this part of my brain, and I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I remember trying my hardest to go, I'm not going to think about that, that's not going to be a part of my thought life, it's not who I want to be, and it wouldn't go away, and I couldn't make it go away. And you know what happened to those thoughts? They festered, they lingered, they got bigger, because that's also in the nature of sin. It doesn't just override us, sin is always growing. It began consuming me. I didn't like myself. My self-esteem started going down. It changed the way I started interacting with other people. And I was so embarrassed of my sin that I definitely couldn't tell anybody, which just gave my sin permission to run rampant in my life. I was drowning in sin. And some of you are here tonight, and you go to youth group, and you laugh at the jokes that your pastor says, and you play the games and have fun, and you eat the ice cream sandwiches when they're there. But if you are truly honest, you are drowning in sin. And God goes, I'm going to smack Nebuchadnezzar down, and I'm going to smack you maybe right now, not just because I want you to know you're wrong, but because I want to heal you from that. I want to take that away from you. I want to bring you to something better. Let me read you James chapter 1. Verse 14, it says this, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The imagery in this verse is that I initially sin, and it, the option is not I can hide it. I can put it in a corner, and it'll sit there by itself, frozen, like a good dog. That's not the nature of sin. This is saying sin is like a child. As soon as it comes into existence, it's growing. Its appetite's growing. It's getting bigger. It's getting stronger. And fully developed sin that has not been dealt with will be your undoing. This says that once it's full grown, it brings about your death. Guys, if you have undealt with sin in your life, you have to know. I don't tell you this to scare you. I tell you this because I love you. And just like the people who are in your life up here, the adults, we want the best for you. And it is freedom from the stuff that's been hidden. It festers, it undoes, it grows, it's the worst, and it's not worth protecting. Sin overrides, and sin always grows. It has to be dealt with. One of uh, the mentors in my life said it this way. He said, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. It will always cost you more than you wanted to pay, and it will always have you stay longer than you wanted to stay. Sin always under-delivers and over-promises. And you know what you and I do? We bounce, we bounce off it. We don't really think about it. We go, oh, I'll try harder next time. Oh, well, you know what? This isn't going to happen again. I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to let that be a piece of me. That's impossible. Because here's the next thing you need to know about sin. Sin is more powerful than you. Our battle against sin is not shoulder to shoulder. You're not wrestling a buddy. This isn't a peer thing where maybe you can win this time. Sin is so much more terrifyingly big and powerful than you will ever be that you do not stand a chance against your own sin. The best way I can put this into perspective <laughs> to you is tell you about what a weird little kid I was. Um, when I was a little kid, I remember we'd be on summer break, and I would, I would just wake up in the morning, and I would walk out on the front front yard and I would just sit on the hot sidewalk and it would burn my knees 
and I would sit out there with a magnifying glass. And I would just burn bugs until they died. Yeah, I know. Guys, I can remember the different kind of ants. Oh, there's a red ant. I can't remember what it smelled like when it was burning. It smelled different than a black ant. But I would sit there, a little maniacal me, right, and an ant would come walking by. And you know what this ant is probably thinking, if he could think? He'd be carrying like a dead grasshopper leg or an aphid, and he's like, I'm going to the queen. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm just living my best life. He has no idea what's coming. And then all of a sudden, my shadow just eclipses him. And I hold the magnifying glass, and I tighten that bead of light. Just If it made a sound, he'd be like, just a laser right in front of him, and he's just walking, I'm fine, master of my destiny, and then his antennas singe off. And what does he do? He turns around and runs the other way. And I imagine him thinking like, okay, that was terrifying. I'm fine. I'm fine. All right. I'm just going to go a different way. I'll figure this out. Okay, here we go. What would I do? I'm going to cut him off. I'm going to move my magnifying glass over here. But his antennas are already gone. So what's the next thing to burn off? The front half of his face. He runs a third direction. He runs a fourth direction. At a certain point, he freezes, realizing... There is some giant, terrifying monster that I cannot get away from, that I don't stand a chance against. Guys, in this analogy, I am your sin and you are the ant. Do you get what I'm saying? This is not a shoulder-to-shoulder battle. If you have convinced yourself, I'll try harder, I'll do better, I'm not going to tell anyone or deal with this, I'm just going to work on it by myself. You're an ant trying to get away from a person with a magnifying glass. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. You... (laughs) are destitute in relation to the size and scope of your sin. It's absolutely hopeless. We do not stand a chance. Our sin overrides us, our sin grows, and our sin is always more powerful than us. Listen listen to the way Paul, the writer of Romans, says this in Romans chapter 7. I don't like this verse, but I relate to it so much that uh, we have to read it. Here's what it says, if I can get the thing. Verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep doing. And then in verse 24, he says, what a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We find ourselves in an impossible situation. And it's not just that we can't escape sin. It's that all the while, it's growing. It's festering. It's increasing in consequence. It's affecting the way we view ourselves, our relationships. It's causing guilt and shame in increasing measure. Sin undealt with undoes us. But that's not it. It's worse than that. Sin doesn't just have personal, real effects on me and how I want to live my life. Sin has effects in the spiritual realm. In Romans 3.23, this is the verse that says, all fall short, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? This means that sin separates us from God. Now we find ourselves in a battle against sin that you and I are not powerful enough to win. If it were a hierarchy, it would be, here's us, and then sin is this powerful and we can't beat it. We need something more powerful than our sin to rescue us from it. Well, the only one who is that is God, And the Bible just told us that our sin disqualified us from interacting with that God. 
So the only one who can save us, we don't have access to. And in light of not having access to him, the Bible goes further. In Romans 6.23, it says that for the wages of sin is death. That we, It also causes us to deserve punishment. And you might hear us skipping to the spiritual part of what sin does and go, that sounds far-fetched. Listen, I'm not King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not murdering people and building giant statues of false gods and forcing a whole nations to worship them. I'm just a kid. What are you talking about? But guys, it's not, it's not about the severity of your sin. Remember, the problem isn't how bad are the external bad things you did. The problem is that we have this sin nature inside us, inextricably linked to us. It's a part of us, and it taints us and prevents us from ever interacting with them. The best way I can help you understand this is to tell you about my first job. I worked in the food court in the mall at Dairy Queen, and I made a mean smoothie, okay? I mean, like there was one point where I 100% made the perfect smoothie. It was glowing. It was a strawberry banana smoothie. I cut it up just right, but as I was cutting it up, I cut my finger, and I went in the back, and I put a Band-Aid on, and I continued making the smoothie. It was like a super extra large. I handed it to the lady. She's all excited. She goes to slurp it. She starts walking away. I hear, ah, and I look down, and my Band-Aid's gone. Guys, it was a bloody Band-Aid. You know what's crazy, though? A strawberry banana smoothie is the exact same color as a Band-Aid. I'm just saying. She had no idea. But do you, do you feel, that, feel that initial response you just had, which was this? Oh! Guys, you and I are the Band-Aid. A Band-Aid has no business ever being in or near a smoothie. Would you agree? The Band-Aid's disgusting. The Band-Aid is tainted. The Band-Aid is ruined. It categorically cannot be with the smoothie. <coughs> the smoothie's God, by the way. That is the nature of our problem. We are drowning in sin, increasing in consequence, and our sin is all the while tainting us and disqualifying us from interacting with the only one who could save us from it. Our problem is hopeless. And if you're going to walk around like King Nebuchadnezzar and go, oh, I'm fine. I'll just acknowledge God and then fill my life with sin. That is a dangerous spot to be. I'll just acknowledge God and then be my own king. May I remind you, you make a lousy king. So do I. When God shows up and goes, I will be the king of your life, it's not this dry religious jargon from a forceful God. It's a God going, I see you drowning in your sin. I see how much you don't like yourself. I see how stuck you feel. I see how much guilt you have. I see how much you have to pretend and you hate it. I want to offer you a better king. I want to give you an option besides sin as your king. It's going to be me. I invite you to have me as a better king. I will do everything needed for me to be a better king for you. This isn't religious drudgery. This is the best possible option. Some of us are living like Nebuchadnezzar. We acknowledge God and we live a life full of sin. And guys, if that's you, what I have been praying this week is like just like God intervened with that guy, that maybe he would intervene with you tonight. Maybe you would have the courage, stirred up by God, just to go, you know what? I'm not going to give sin that control anymore. I'm going to move it into the light. I'm going to talk to a counselor or somebody. I'm done with this, and I'm going to do something about it. Because a resilient Christian understands the bigness and the severity of sin. God hates sin because he loves you so much. And it may be the thing keeping you from him. Let me pray. God, we love you. We acknowledge not just our mess-ups, our accidents, our mistakes. God, we acknowledge our conscious sin.
the guilt that we choose sometimes over and over. We acknowledge that our situation is hopeless. And God, I pray that for every single one of us in here, that you would convict, that you would encourage, that you would guide, that you would get glory out of the sin resisted, out of the obedient steps taken to truly surrender to you as a good king. We love you, Jesus. Amen.